excited to be joined by Aaron Mitchell, who is the director of HR for Netflix Animation Studio, which is the division of Netflix that produces and develops animated programs and feature films. Amazing that I'm able to get this amazing guy from Netflix on the podcast. I'm so excited. I met Aaron where else? You guessed it, at Harvard Business School. You guys must be tired of me saying that now. Aaron was in the year below me, so he graduated in 2011 and I graduated in 2010. Since then, he's had an impressive journey, taking him from Boston to New York to Singapore and now to Los Angeles with Netflix. Aaron, welcome to the Soul Career Podcast. What I wanted to do now was to switch gears a little bit to learn more about you. How did you, your journey to ending up in this place? I remember that you had told me that you actually went to a high school for music, but originally you wanted to be in TV and then you ended up in a, as a banker and then you ended up at Netflix. So your journey took so many detours. So let's start at the beginning where did you grow up? What did you study in high school? How did you end up where you are now? So I, I grew up in um, New Haven, Connecticut. So anybody who doesn't know New Haven, New Haven is uh, Yale University is located in New Haven. So right. I grew up in the shadow of Yale University. Um, anybody who's familiar with Yale or has been to New Haven, specifically towards the 80s and 90s, there were two Yale, there were two New Havens. There's the pristine Yale University campus and all of its Ivy League splendor. And then there is the surrounding city, which for the most part, working class, right? And so I grew up in a working class family and I grew up in New Haven during the eighties and nineties during, you know, the crack academic that really shocked New Haven like it shocked a number of cities uh, throughout the United States during that period of time. But I grew up in a, in a, loving, supportive family, um, and ended up going to, as you mentioned, a performing arts high school. So it was a multidisciplinary performing arts high school. I originally wanted to go for visual arts. My mom, who was a cake decorator um, and very artistic herself, convinced the principal that I should go for music instead, because I had played clarinet in middle school for like a year, and I hated it. But she's like, you can play clarinet, he can play saxophone, and for some reason, she didn't talk about any of the stuff I was doing with art. So I ended up going for music full time, frustrated, usually drawing in my math classes instead of paying attention. I took a bunch of art classes outside of high school, like I took basket weaving and photography and different other sort of multidisciplinary classes. But this was the focus. I graduated um, with a focus in music. I played the saxophone. I've played now for over 25 years. Wow. Went to Temple University in Philadelphia, majored in business, minored in music, because I was like, well, going to try to figure out how to keep the thing alive going. Um, eventually dropped the minor, graduated degree in business, met my wife at Temple University as well, freshman year. We've been together now for, it'll be 21 years in, next month, actually. Um, we left Philly, went to Bakersfield where I worked for a food processing company. So I worked in food for about five and a half years in Bakersfield, California. There's a whole story about Bakersfield we won't go into, but that was my first international assignment. Mm -hmm. uh, then went to business school where we met. Yeah. <laughs> and sort of the rest, the rest there, you know, New York City, Singapore, Boston, now back in LA with Netflix. 
so you glossed over the whole part of the journey where you were a banker and then an entrepreneur and then you you, well, you want to hear all that you want to hear all that? <laughs> i think that's important because a lot of people that listen to this podcast they're pursuing non-linear careers and the view of people that graduate uh, from harvard business school is that we're set for life. We are on the path and we just end up in these high paying roles like magic. And for those of us, well, blacks at HBS, we tend to take a non-traditional career path coming out and we tend to meander a bit and then find the thing. So that was your journey post HBS. I want to hear the specifics of that part of the journey. <laughs> I will tell you. Fine. <laughs> so, so as far as non-traditional is concerned, you know, I, I came into HBS with a background in HR, which if you remember, Lissandra, there was probably of the 940 of us on campus at one time, there was probably nine of us that had HR backgrounds. I was going to say five, but okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying to exaggerate just a little bit, but maybe, maybe there's like nine of us and of the nine of us that had HR backgrounds, maybe three of us were interested in doing HR post right. uh, MBA. So I was in, I was in a very uh, big minority in terms of like career focus and background. Uh, and then so my entire post HBS career, I'd say is non-standard because most people don't go into HR. Yeah. So I came out of HBS, I joined Citibank's uh, HR development program. Mm. Uh, and there, there's a story there where like when Citibank first reached out to me, my cover letter was like, well, when you reached out, I wasn't actually interested because my interaction with you at a networking event, but since you reached out, I guess we can talk. <laughs> Not advised, but I have been me and I've been authentically me for a long time. It's only recently started working for me. But <laughs> I went to the bank, um, did a year in New York working in their hedge fund, private equity fund doing compensation. And an opportunity came up to move to Singapore um, that was pretty unique in the program. Usually you would do these two one-year uh, rotations in New York or some U.S. office. And then there was a possibility of a six-month rotation for like one of the class of 10 of us. Okay. But I got my second rotation ended up being Singapore um, because they needed somebody to help lead recruitment transformation. I had done recruitment for five and a half years before I went to HBS. So they figured I was fairly strategic and a domain expert. So they sent me out to Asia to fix recruitment for Asia Pacific. I went out there for a year and that year ended up turning into five, four and a half years because I wrote my own job description while I was in the role to sort of develop the strategy for Asia Pacific. And when they're like, hey, so great strategy. We, we're gonna do all of this. Do you think you want to stay? And I'm like, oh, I've considered it. They're like, do you know what you want to do? I'm like, that job description that was written right there, that basically sounds like me, I'd love to do that job. <laughs> Sold. So I got to write my own job as part of the strategy. Yeah. And I ended up doing this job where I was head of strategy and planning for Asia Pacific recruitment for Citibank. We were hiring 20,000 people a year in Asia Pacific. So it was a lot of opportunity to learn. It was a lot of opportunity to get it wrong and refine it, do it again. So I worked really closely with a lot of leadership. Um, again, sort of very non-traditional because in terms of strategy and planning, I think when our friends coming out of HBS think about strategy and planning, they think about it in the context of management consulting. Right. They think about it in the context of- Finance. 
Yeah, or a role that sounds much more strategic, whereas I was able to carve something out almost completely for me because I was doing it in a space that wasn't overly populated by Harvard MBAs or MBAs in general, right? And you were doing people ops before it became a thing. And now it's a huge thing coming out of the pandemic, people operations. Oh, yeah. Yep. I have to build a team. Basically, I set up the strategy and built a team that was going to be located in the Philippines. I helped to set that team up and train that team. I got to see the region in a real meaningful way and make real meaningful connections with people and get things done. So I did that four and a half years, came back to the U.S. where I, I joined a company called Mass Mutual, leading talent management, executive recruiting, university recruiting. That's, that stint lasted just under a year. And it was during that time where I was on the advisory board, where I met the woman who hired me at Netflix. But again, all of this happening in this HR career where one, the, 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 thing, that was, the, the thing that was probably the most affirming when I was at HBS was the fact that every time I would go on a recruitment event and there were like HBS alums that were the recruiters. You remember how a lot of alums yeah. would come back to recruit. I remember having this conversation one time, I walk up to a recruiter they're either in finance or consulting. And I introduced myself. I'm like, hi, I'm Aaron Mitchell. I'm looking to do HR. And I'm like, wait, hold on. You're Harvard MBA, right? I'm like, yeah. It's like, why the hell would you do HR? I'm like, <laughs> because it's a business function that's super important. Why not? It's like, seems like a waste of a Harvard MBA, don't you think? And I'm like, no. But when he said that, I'm like, oh, that means I'm not going to be in a crowded space full of people who are trying to do this just because they think it's the trend-worthy thing to do. The yeah. only people around here are gonna be the people who actually want to do it or who can actually do it. And that's gonna mean talent density for me in terms of how I grow, how I develop, but also I'm not gonna have a crowded field of people who are just coming in to get their two year stint and run. So that, that was the, the reaffirmation for me. That question, what a, why are, what a waste of a Harvard MBA, that comment. It just sticks out to me because I feel like I've heard that myself, you know, and beyond even deciding not to do the traditional things coming out with a Harvard MBA, I actually started doing the traditional things, management consulting, private equity, like, and it felt like I was swimming upstream against my interests and what my personality was like and what I was capable of to force fit myself into what a Harvard MBA should do. And I couldn't do it for more than a few months or even like a year. I couldn't do it for longer than that. So that is interesting. And I want to shift everyone's um, perspective of what your career should look like or supposed to look like and move it into being very aligned with who you are and what you really want. And coming out of that, we talked about what some of the roadblocks that you had, some of the biggest challenges you faced as you went through that journey. What would you say was the biggest challenge that you had? So I mentioned coming back to the U.S. Um, and working in a role for about 10, 11 months before I moved on to Netflix. Uh, when I worked in Singapore, I spent about four and a half years outside of the US. Yeah. And for me personally, this was probably the most transformational experience that I had because this is the first time I felt like my contribution, my ideas, et cetera, 
were finally being evaluated on sort of neutral ground. And what I mean by that is, as a black man in America, I had only been used to experiencing myself within the context of corporate America, right? And in the context of America, you know, there are things that are just built in systemically to how people will perceive me as a black man. And in Asia, I was just an American. For the first time in my life, I was just an American. So, and the other thing is like, people thought, oh, I went to Harvard, I wear glasses, I must be smart. There, there's a stereotype <laughs> around glasses that I was like, okay, sure. Um, and, and so like, it was the first time where I had this perpetual experience of being treated like I deserve to be in the room. Yeah. And then I came back to the US. Now I'm putting all this together sort of in terms of like how I think about my career in HR. In HR, I've always been, what's the word I wanna look for? Empowered to speak up and point out sort of inequities and things of that nature because our, our role almost requires it, right? I've never felt like I was super well equipped to do that, but I felt like it was an expectation of me in my role as an HR person, especially because I'm a black man. In Singapore, I felt like I was equipped. And so I came back like, oh, wait, I see this for what it is. So I got hired into a role where they told me that my job was to help to change the culture, to help to point these things out, to help make the company better. And I believe the company believed that. And I believe they believed that somebody like me could do it but I don't believe they were ready for me. And I don't believe I was ready for an environment that was not ready to operate without seeing me the way that companies in America have always seen me, right? I got used to being in Singapore. I got used to just being able to be me. And I took all of that back to an environment that wasn't ready. It was like, almost like going back in time, right? And I tried, I tried, I tried, I tried to make certain adjustments but I couldn't, like, I literally could not go back to, oh, you're supposed to shrink yourself, Mm. make other people feel comfortable. You're supposed to not say the smart thing. You're supposed to do the politically expedient thing. And I feel like being for, like, I got bad at the politics because I got good at being me and I no longer had to navigate these things. So it was a setback of setbacks because there were parts of this, Lissandra, where I get this feedback like, hey, we don't think that you're strategic enough. Now, I had been told my entire career that I was strategic. I led strategy and planning. But in the context of what I was trying to do, I wasn't doing the job they needed me to do. Now, part of that is stylistic. I was probably coming in like, this is what needs to change. And I'm not going to you know, that because that's that's who I am, but it got worse being in Asia. And another part is like, again, the organization not really assessing its readiness and saying, you know what, for us to get there, we're going to need to take five to seven years. So we should tell whoever's coming in is going to take that long. Instead, they're like, we want to get there as quickly as possible. And I'm the same person who, you know, in less than a month and a half worked with Netflix to make this black bank thing can happen. So I'm impatient. Yeah. And they weren't ready for that. So that was a huge setback, both, you know, most importantly, like I failed. I failed to do the thing that I came to do. 
I sent an email to my section telling them as much. Like I personally feel like I failed. My wife had just had a child and we took a financial hit taking this job. We could have stayed in Singapore and been happy. Um, and then, you know, even I had some things going on in my, my personal professional life. Like I was launching a business venture that took a backseat and I didn't have the capital to invest in it because I took a hit. So all of these things were just like a major, major slap in the face. But what it did is it helped me evaluate for me personally, what is important? Where am I unwilling to compromise? What messages am I going to look at and see and, and associate with what is important to me? And looking back, I knew that this environment wasn't ready for me. Like when we were having the conversations about diversity and change and things of that nature, I could get, I got the sense that, you know what, they're not ready, but they want to be ready. So let me do this thing, even though I know it doesn't feel right, but I'm going to trust the one person who seems to have some leverage there and ignore the 99 other things that are telling me this is wrong. I won't be making that mistake anytime soon. And it's helped me, honestly, as a career coach to provide better career. Because I used to think that everybody who failed somehow did it on their own. It was somehow a personal failure that circumstances could not really be a part of somebody's failure. But after that experience, I'm like, there are times where you can do everything possible. You can be the nicest person. You can yep. understand the, po the political framework. You can put lay all the you know breadcrumbs you want and still fail because somebody just doesn't want you there. And that's real. There are so many nuggets and gems that you just dropped in that story and that resonated with me personally. But I think the thing that I will most remember is you promised yourself coming out of that that you would follow your gut on whether an, an environment, a company was the right fit for you because you refused to compromise on who you are coming out of your experiences up to that point, which is ultimately what led you to the role you're in at Netflix. And I don't want to get into it because we're running out of time, but you told me that very early in your career at Netflix, something happened around diversity and inclusion and you wrote a four-page letter to Reed Hastings and instead of shutting you down, he was like, I need to talk to you. I need to listen to you. What a culture that is to be a part of after your experience. Absolutely. And, and I won't go into it, but <laughs> your point, right? I've been at so many other companies where I've been that person who's willing to say, you know what, I'm going to raise my hand and say something. And I feel like the experience that I've had here in the last four years is one where that's finally being embraced, right? Yeah. Where it's like, and, and that's, and because it's embraced, it makes you look back at all the times when it wasn't like, what's wrong with those places? Exactly. Not what makes this place so special. You know what I mean? Like what is wrong where somebody's saying, Hey, I'm having an issue. I'm having an uncomfortable experience. My humanity is being minimized. Yeah. I'd like to say something. Why shouldn't we all be places where the, the response is, you're right, I'd love to listen. Yes, I love that. And you know, a soul career requires you to be exactly who you are. 
it's required. It's not a nice to have, right? So that's how I view it. When you are required to be exactly who you are in order to do well in a company, that's when you know you're in a soul career. For me, I am very vocal, I'm very expressive, I'm very exuberant and lively. And every corporate environment that I was in before Virgin, they tried to hone me in, restrain me, just quiet down a little bit, just, you know. And Virgin was the first place that was like, wow, we love that. Bring more of that. And it mm -hmm. was just amazing. So I know we're running out of time, so I will have so many things that I want to ask you, but I have to ask you this one because this one is important. I know we're going to go off on a tangent with this one, though, but okay. What was the key decision that you took that led you to your soul career? Because I know the answer is a surprise for this. So yes, go, go, go. <laughs> so yeah, the answer is a surprise. The, what led to my soul career, honestly, was a decision I made 21 years ago. Um, my wife, Duni, um, we met freshman year of college and I'd like to say we've been accomplices ever since. Um, every decision that we make, we make together. Um, and I don't wanna make it seem like it's all collaborative. Like we argue, like the first day I met my wife, I said some things to her that you don't say to people that you're romantically interested in. And so the entire baseline for our relationship is honesty and directness. And so at every single sort of intersection in our careers, we've had honest discussions. When, when, when we graduated from college, my wife was making twice as much money as me. <laughs> moved out to Bakersfield, California, sight unseen. And when I was like, hey, I'm coming too. She's like, where are you gonna live? <laughs> and who's gonna pay those bills? So from the very beginning, it was like, there are terms and conditions to this relationship that we should both be very clear about. And it has been the case ever since, you know, we went from my wife being the breadwinner, uh, working for the major company, electrical engineer, uh, very well rated, me being the aspiring musician who just happens to have a day job in HR, and there was a point in our career where she's like, you know what, I don't got this. Like corporate America is not for me because the version of her that she wanted to be was not being embraced. Thank you. Not being embraced. And yeah. there was a point in time where I watched it break her. Yeah. And instead of letting it continue to break her, I was like, I'll drive. I've got this. That's when I decided to apply for Harvard. And the, the sort of the rest has been, you know, history. My wife is now a personal trainer, a nutritionist, a aspiring professional bodybuilder, nothing to do with electrical engineering because that was not her sole career. Yeah. She's living her sole career right now as a, as a fitness uh, professional because that's, that, that is where she can do good for people and do good for you know, herself. Yeah. And why I say that's, that's the most important decision that led to my sole career when I, when I fast forward all the way back up to that, that previous business or previous company experience I was talking about, there was a point in time, I want to say it was like beginning, end of September, I was driving to work one day. I think I got an email about how something that I was working on yet again got canceled because there was a bunch of things that had been taken, responsibilities taken away. And I called her up and like, I'm just so frustrated. Like they did it again. They took something and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, just quit. I'm like, <laughs> what <laughs> now my wife like no trust fund right like no 
backup plan. There was no offer. Uh, we just had a newborn. So we had a newborn on top of a five-year-old who was in private school and our savings were steadily dwindling every month that we were in this job because miscalculated some things. Oops. Never once did she blame me. Never once did she say, figure it out. She was like, if it's destroying who you are and I know who you are and I love you and I support you, quit because there's, you cannot let this place destroy you, right? And I was like, wait, my wife who told me, if you don't have a job, don't come to California because who's gonna pay these bills is now like, I do not wanna see this destroy you. She is the only reason that I can be living my soul career. Because the other thing was, we were about to leave America when things didn't work out. Like I had a verbal offer to take a job in Hong Kong and I get the call from Netflix, like I mentioned. And I was like, hey, can you believe this? Like Netflix is calling. Of course they're gonna call like once I have an, an opportunity. And she's like, take the interview. I'm like, but we're going to Hong Kong. Like everything's working out. Like somebody's looking for housing. She's like, take the interview. I'm like, but just so we're clear, <laughs> I'm taking the interview to be nice, but we're moving to Hong Kong. She's like, it's Netflix, take the interview. The rest is history. I always listen to my wife. I will continue to listen to my wife. We are still best friends and continue to be so. And the reason I think and I hope is because we can engage in this open, honest dialogue and help each other live our best lives. And you forgot to mention she is hot. <laughs> I saw a picture of her. I was like, wow. <laughs> you can say that. I, she is all of those things. And yes. And a wonderful, amazing wife and career coach and electrical engineer and everything amazing. And I love that story because it is something that I hope to meet in my future husband as well. A, partner, a partnership, a true partnership. Um, and sometimes she took the lead, sometimes you took the lead, but at the end of the day, you're all, you're both on the same team and that's what's really important. So I had to include that story because it is so, so beautiful. As an example, we have a Michelle and Barack Obama example right here in Aaron and Dooney Mitchell. <laughs> okay. So my last question for you, Aaron, is twofold. Where do you go from here? You're at a pinnacle right now. What's next for you? And what kind of, what three takeaways should we have from your example? Yeah, so in, term, in terms of what's next, um, you know, one thing is I'd like to continue doing good. You know, I think since the launch of the Black Bank Initiative, I've joined the board, a few nonprofit boards. So I joined the board of an organization called The People Concern, which focuses on homelessness and ending homelessness here in LA. I joined the board of the Atlanta Music Project, which is a uh, tuition, free tuition music program down in Atlanta. Music is super important to me. And I think it is part of what unlocked a lot of my creativity. Yeah. And then I also joined the board of UNICEF USA, which is focused on um, children's rights around the world, right? So I wanna continue doing more and more good as much as I'm allowed to do as much as my advice can help these organizations do more and do better. Um, I'm also writing a memoir. So I, 
you know, talking about my, my own personal story, I've done, I've done this a number of times, both as a career coach on panels, et cetera. And I often get, you know, these reactions to my story, like, oh my gosh, that's interesting, or tell me more. Um, and really, you know, the, the idea of the memoir is really talking about the three points that you, you talk about, you know, in terms of the takeaways. And I, I focus a lot on the, the ideas of resilience, of authenticity, and, and I'd say of living your life according to your own meaning, right? So the resilience piece being, you know, my attitude right now is that things are just going to be hard, right? This pandemic, the last two years has been hard. There's been things that have happened that I think have tested me personally in ways that I hadn't been tested before. And I've seen it happening to everybody, right? Like we're seeing this collectively. And so it's an opportunity to build resilience, right? To figure out how to overcome over and over again. And a lot of that has to do with mindset more than anything, because we can't control what life is going to throw at us. We can only control within, you know, the things that we can control how we will respond to it. Yeah. And, and a lot of, a lot of this memoir, right, is going to talk about just a lifetime worth of reasons to be resilient. Um, the authenticity piece being super important. You mentioned it in terms of soul career, like this idea of being able to bring your authentic self to a place, it's a fairly new concept in corporate America. And honestly, it's a fairly new concept culturally, right? Because most cultures are like, yourself is not a factor. You are to bring who your parents want to the room, who your pastor wants, who your, you know, manager, wants. manager, like you are like, we, we were taught and bought up in a way that suggest, suggest, should suggest that we're living life for others. So authenticity is a fairly new concept, but one that I think I have successfully sort of incorporated into my life and into the things that I do. And like being involved in UNICEF and AMP and people, the people concerned has way more to do with like what I'm personally interested in versus what looks good on a resume, right? And everything like doing HR, going to HBS was never about like, oh, HR is the most lucrative career you can have. It was like, this is what I do. This is who I am. This is where I think I can be impactful. And that's what I'm going to focus on. So authenticity, I feel like has to be a part of it. And then, you know, just living your own purpose, whatever that is. You know, I was talking to somebody about, you know, what they want to do. And they were trying to come up with all these lofty things. And I'm like, you realize my wife is trying to be a bodybuilder, right? <laughs> like being a bodybuilder, as far as an objective thing in the world, does not do good for the world. But my wife focusing on being a bodybuilder is doing good for her. Her doing good for her allows her to inspire people to do good for themselves. It's not lofty. It's not, you know, humanitarian, but it is deeply personal. And because it's deeply personal, she can throw everything that she wants and has into that. And as I've watched her do that, I've seen her get as close to happy in the last two years, mind you, all during the pandemic, then in the previous 18 that we've been together, where she was trying to find it in other places. So I feel like you have to find something that allows you to do you. That's got to be a part of it. 
And whatever that is, hopefully, hopefully, because it's not guaranteed, but hopefully the financial rewards come with that. But like, I never, I did not go into HR thinking that it was going to be lucrative. I am now the breadwinner of my family and I'm living a life that I want to live. I'm not a billionaire. It was never part of the objective, but I'm living very much the life that I wanted to live, the way that I wanted to live it with the people around me that I value and the kinds of relationships that I want to put into. So yes. Hopefully that helps. So you had resilience, authenticity, and purpose as your three nuggets coming out of the memoir that you're writing. I'm also writing a memoir. I have been writing it for 10 years, but this is the year that I'm going to get it published because it's been done for years, right? Um, so I love that. And maybe we can connect on a lot of these other things that came up that we didn't get a, a chance to deep dive into. Um, but your three tips are very aligned with Soul Career's core values or top three core values. We have six or top three. Number one is purpose. Number two is authenticity. And number three is connection. And guess what? We did not even talk about this before you came on. But wow, that shows how I was able to attract you to the podcast because we're so aligned in how we think about career plus life plus growth and learning and all these other things. Thank you so much, Erin. This has been a true pleasure having you on the podcast. It went a little longer than we normally do, but I can't cut any of it because everything was gems, right? <laughs> so I appreciate you so much. This was a real pleasure. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me and best of luck on everything. And thank you for allowing me to share my soul career with everybody. Thank you.